But let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 4. We'll pick right up where we left off last Sunday. We're in verses 16 through 30 of Luke chapter 4. And the title of our study today is The Murderous Rage of Pride. Doesn't that sound like a fun study? You know, I choose these titles as best I can to reflect the theme of the text. But sometimes I do wonder if people might skip church when they see topics like this. I mean, I, we, we get how to fight temptation like Christ. I mean, that's, that's a winner. But this, you know, the murderous rage of pride. We're reminded that if God puts topics like this in the scriptures, then they are there for a perfectly good and wise and necessary reason. And today we're going to look at a message that Jesus gave that was not popular. It was not well received. Matter of fact, I cannot even imagine a worse reception than what we're going to see in the text here. So follow along as I read, starting in verse 16, and I'll comment as we work our way through this passage. Verse 16 says, And he, that is Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Now very briefly so far, we can see that Jesus has returned to his hometown, his hometown of about 30 years. Most everyone there would have known him as they watched, many of them, watched him from birth to manhood. I mean, think about this with me. Put yourselves in their shoes. Get into the text here a little bit. Some of these folks here in this synagogue, in this place of worship, likely went to school with Jesus. They played games with Jesus. Maybe they worked together. Maybe even some of them lived in the same neighborhood as Jesus. Boy, imagine the stories they could tell their, to, to their children and their grandchildren. It's very likely that most everyone in this synagogue knew Jesus. Now, as far as context goes, we, we, we learn from the other Gospels that from the time of Jesus' baptism and his, his, his 40 days in the wilderness, the time of temptation, which we just looked at, Several months have now passed in Jesus' life in the verses of verse 14 and 15 in this chapter. Several months have gone by, maybe even a year has transpired, and it brings us to where we are now in the text. Jesus had already begun to do ministry, and his fame was going before him. And at this point, he returns to Nazareth and goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom. Note, that Jesus made a point of consistently being in the place of worship on the Sabbath. This was important to him. This was a high-value behavior. He was faithfully in the place of worship on the day of worship. Thank you for being here today. The text, the text says that Jesus stood up to read the Scriptures. If you've studied some of the the, uh, the, the services and the, the, the times of worship in Jewish custom and all, then perhaps you know that a rabbi or a teacher would indeed stand up to read a passage from the Torah and then a passage from one of the prophets. And then they would sit to preach the text, to teach the text. They would expound on the meaning. That privilege was given to Jesus on this day in this synagogue in Nazareth. The fact that it would, the privilege was given to Jesus indicates that everyone already knew that he was a respected expositor of the scriptures. 
Very interesting. Look at verse 17. It says, In the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, before we look at the rest of this text, I want us to observe the five-point, the five-fold appointment of Jesus Christ in his ministry. The five-point mission of the Messiah, according to this prophecy written by Isaiah. There are five points. Preach the gospel to the poor. Proclaim release to captives. Recover the sight of the blind. Set free the oppressed and proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. This is why Jesus came. We could easily spend an entire sermon or more on these five points, but we're not going to because that's not the point of this text. That's not the intent of this record here in Luke. But we do need to recognize that these Jews in this synagogue would have been very familiar with this Isaiah prophecy. Israel has been waiting for centuries for this rescue to happen. And the prophets often echoed the promise of deliverance. These Jews in Nazareth knew the Messiah would come at some point and rescue them in some way. But little did they know what form that redemption would actually take. Not a temporary freedom... From, from, from political and social oppression of neighboring nations. But this would be an eternal freedom from the oppression, the bondage, and the curse of sin. This is not only the hope and the promise of deliverance from Babylonian captivity, but a promise of something far greater at least at face value, the Jews knew the Messiah would someday come and the Spirit of God would be upon him and he would be anointed to proclaim and to preach the gospel to the poor. He would proclaim release and he'd heal the blind, etc. These people looked forward to the long-awaited favorable year of the Lord. Verse 21, it says, And Jesus, he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine being a Jew and hearing a, a rabbi say those words? Today, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. The time of your deliverance is now. It is right here. You're listening to it unfold in this very moment. This would be akin to me standing here before you and saying something like, today Jesus will return in the clouds. Today you will see the dead in Christ rise first and all who know Jesus Christ will meet them in the air. Today the rapture is going to happen. Now first off, if you ever hear me say such a thing, Run for the exits. 
And it's not to see if Jesus is coming out there. Run from my preaching. No man knows the day or the time, Scripture says. We just know that He's coming like He promised, like the Father promised, like the Holy Spirit promises, the seal of our salvation, the seal, the guarantor of our redemption. We also study the signs that Scripture gives that point to the nearness of Christ's return. But if I were to make such a claim, it would undoubtedly catch your attention. If you know anything about Scripture, and undoubtedly Jesus' claim on this day in the text caught the attention of the Jews like no other. Verse 22, it says, And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? All were speaking well of him. Remember that note in the text. They viewed his words as being gracious. They were impressed. Now, of course, there was also a little bit of confusion. Isn't this Joseph's son? Is this the same Jesus we've known for 30 years? Again, Jesus has lived with them for three decades, and, and, no, and no one in all that time has ever seen Jesus sin. I mean, if there was a perfect person in our church family, don't you think we would all know it? No, not one unkind word, not even one selfish deed, not even one sinful attitude. We see here that Jesus faithfully attended the weekly worship and study. He was no stranger to these people, but something was different on this day, and they knew it. Remember, Jesus has been baptized. The Holy Spirit has come upon him. God has publicly approved of him as his son. And as Jesus' ministry has begun to happen, and now he's returned to Nazareth, and they can all tell something is different about him and his teaching. It is both gracious and astonishing. Listen to Jesus' follow-up now in verse 23. And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Everybody take note. This conversation just took a very hard, tur uh, uh, hard turn in direction. Verse 25, but I say to you in truth, twice now Jesus has said, this is true. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Pause there. That would be a Gentile woman, a non-Israelite woman. Jesus was making the point that none of the widows of Israel got the provision and special attention of God. Verse 27, 
And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Same point here. Only a Gentile got the healing, not the Israelites. Remember, at this time in Jesus' day, the Jews' animosity was great toward the heathen Gentiles. Now look at how these Jews responded to the reprimand Jesus just gave them. Verse 28, And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. Very quickly, this communicates two things to us. Number one, they all understood clearly this was a judgment being talked about. And secondly, they all understood very clearly that Jesus was talking about them. Verse 29, And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. This entire church family, if I could call them that, help us relate here. This entire church family physically grabbed Jesus, drove him out of the church, dragged him out of town, and prepared to throw him off a cliff. Can you imagine a church, a body of religious people so overcome with anger to the point of murderous rage, all because Jesus said something they didn't like? He didn't beat anyone. He didn't rob anyone. He didn't molest anyone. He didn't ruin their livelihoods. He didn't slander them. He just said something that they did not like. It was true, but they did not like it. And in a moment, this church family turned on a dime into a bloodthirsty mob. And remember, this is not something like Aesop's fables. A story made up to teach us a good lesson. This is a historical account of something that happened in the life of Jesus. Worshipping one second, murdering the next. How in the world does a group of religious people in the place of worship, in the moment of studying the scriptures, become so evil, so violent, so united. I mean, this is interesting. So united in vehement, murderous outrage. We are looking at a crystal clear case of pride. My church family, this cautionary record has been written and preserved for you and for me. This historical account is a warning, especially to the people of God. It is a shot across the bow of pride in the Jews. But also for our instruction, it is a shot across the bow of pride in the church. You and me and our families and our ministries I'd like us to take a few minutes to look at pride from the perspective of the text we just read. But then let's also look at the opposite of pride, which is humility. We want to learn from this historical record not only what not to do, but what to do. 
Put off pride and put on humility. This is how the Holy Spirit uses the text to not only inform us, but change us, as we sang about just a few minutes ago. There are five truth observations that we can find here in the text. Um, Maybe more if you see one or two extra, feel free to let me know. But today, for now, we have five to work with, and I'm going to put these truth observations in the first person. So that we're not just sitting here critiquing some group of people that lived 2,000 years ago. And we're not just critiquing the tendencies of humanity in general, not, we're not, e- not even the, the church at large. Rather, we want to look at the tendencies of our own heart, in our own homes, in our own family, in our own church. So here are five truth observations about pride that we learn from this account of the angry Nazarite Jews. If you're taking notes, here's number one. Pride makes a person unpredictable. You never know when it will unexpectedly lash out or explode. You see, even as we observe in this, in this uh, body of Jews, these religious people, as long as pride isn't being crossed, a person can be cordial and graceful and accepting. You might even find them in the weekly Bible study, just like we see here. But once you cross that line, a taste of hellfire can erupt like no other. Pride makes a person unpredictable. Number two, pride can't admit fault. Think about it. These Jews would rather kill Jesus than accept his convicting words. May I ask, what lengths will you go to to reject others when they accurately point out your faults? I have to ask myself the same question. Some people ignore, some fight back, some argue, some excuse, some hate. The bottom line is that pride, to various degrees, keeps us from admitting when we're wrong. And, of course, the continuation of that is that pride also then keeps us from doing something about it. You see, pride can't admit and pride won't change. Point number three, pride blinds us to some of the most obvious truths. Galatians 6.3 says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Revelation 3, verse 17 The Lord God Almighty says this to the Laodicean church, the infamous lukewarm church. You say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. In Obadiah chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, the Lord says, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Pride is a destructive blindfold to reality. especially spiritual 
and personal and relational realities. It blinds us to realities of self, realities of God, and yes, even the realities of others. The Jews couldn't see the Messiah when he was sitting right in front of them. Pride distorts our view of others. Maybe it's family members. Maybe it's coworkers, employers, employees. Maybe it's fellow church members. Pride often views those closest to us to some degree or another as enemies. But pride also distorts our view of ourselves. It keeps us from seeing ourselves as God sees us, particularly in this case, our immaturities, our needs, our weaknesses, our faults, our sins. Again, pride sees little wrong in self, and when it does, it justifies, and it points the finger at others because, again, it can't admit fault, therefore, it won't be changed. This is the wall of pride. Number four, pride fuels our angry temper. Boy, do we see this in the text. This is scary. Pride isn't satisfied with just rejecting the accuser. It wants to fight. Pride hurts others. And often it does so for the most self-righteous reasons. Angry people do things they never thought possible. Words come from their mouth that they thought they would surely never utter. It's the rage of pride, anger out of control. Of course, pride in its infant forms won't murder people, but it is more, more than willing to hurt them. With cutting words, with a cold shoulder, perhaps by withholding blessing and kindness with slander and so on. Pride turns angry and then it hurts those who get in its way. This is the nature of pride. Psalm 73 verse six says this about the wicked heart. Pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. The two go hand in hand like a matching outfit, pride and violence. Point number five, point number five. Pride drives us away from God. Isn't it interesting? These Jews ran Jesus out of the synagogue. I mean, what a thought, huh? The people of the church running God out of the church. They ran Jesus out of town. They tried to run him off a cliff. They couldn't get far enough from the Messiah fast enough. Psalm 10.4 says this, the wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Pride does not want to acknowledge God and his presence. By default, it distances itself from the Lord. Now, before we look at the wonderful beauty of humility, Turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 16. If you have your Bibles with you, I trust you do. Turn your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. 2 Chronicles 26, we're going to be, begin reading in verse 16. Here is a demonstration of pride and what God thinks of it. 
Second Chronicles 26, beginning of verse 16, it says this of one of Israel's kings, King Uzziah. But when he became strong, there is a word of warning right there. Didn't we look at this, uh, this concept in one of the New Testament texts last week? When you think you are strong, be careful, be alert, be wary, lest you fall. King Uzziah made this grand mistake. It says, but when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Pause there. That was his great sin. Do you recall last week, one of the facts we learned about temptation is that it often appears spiritual. Verse 17 goes on to explain King Uzziah's great sin. It says, Then Azariah the priest entered after him, and with him 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. Well, I like that. I tuck that away. Verse 18, They opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests the sons of Aaron who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead, and they hurried him out of there. And he himself also hastened to get out because the Lord had smitten him. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. My prayer today is that God and His Word through His Spirit will help us to see the dreadfulness of our pride more than when we came. That we will strive to put it off. This is the work of faith the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope that strives to memorize the Word, obey the Word, be filled with the Spirit so we can defeat one of the greatest temptations like Christ. Let's flip all five of these points now and make some truth observations about humility. Number one, humility brings stability. In the sense that it, it, it helps to quench the unexpected outbursts. It reduces the mood swings. Think about this. Humility is consistent because it responds the same way to both kindness and critique. To both praise and admonition. To both blessing and hardship. 
Humility that is coupled with faith knows how to be abased and to abound, to have much and to suffer need, like the Apostle Paul said. Humility brings stability. Point number two, humility is willing and ready to admit fault. This is why humble people mature while proud people don't. Humility receives, discerns, and learns from criticism, from instruction, from warning. Spot a man or a woman who receives instruction and criticism well, and you will have spotted a person who learns and matures faster than the rest. This is the way life works by God's design. Humility is the path upon which sanctification walks. This is closely related to point number three. Humility opens our eyes to some of the most hidden truths. Point number three. Truths about God, truths about others, truths about self, truths about life. Sit back with me on this point for just a second and observe that the accuracy of our assessment of all these things hinges on the standard of measurement we are using. So we have to ask ourselves, by what standard do we measure God? Ourselves, others, and by what standard do we interpret and measure life itself? And how accurate and trustworthy is our standard? Listen closely. Our ability to see hidden truths, particularly the divine, boils down to whether we view life through our lens or God's. 2 Corinthians 10, 18 says, For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. The believer, the true follower of Christ, diligently and increasingly chooses the lens of God. And that lens, of course, comes through the word of God, the commendation of God, the corrections of God, the truth of God in his spirit. This is one reason that we are so encouraging our church family to take in the $50 biblical counseling training that has just recently been made available to us. I'm telling you, this will probably be the best $50 deal you will ever see on biblical counseling training. I've been watching this for a number of years now. I took particularly this training over to, probably to over 20 years ago. I have not seen an opportunity like this come across my path in all of this time. It will assuredly help us to see life more clearly through the lens of God's word. How to accurately interpret and identify sin, sinful behaviors, biblical remedies, how to effectively and inspiringly communicate the truths of the word of God. When we put on the mind of Christ, it's like putting corrective lenses over our eyes. It's like turning on the light. What a contrast to the warning given in Romans chapter 12. Verse 16 says, Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. What about Romans 12, verse 3? For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, 
but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. How different this account in Luke might have been had these Jews, these religious people, repented in the moment? Had they sorrowed over the sinful state that Jesus was willing to reveal to them? Had they just asked Jesus for help? But Jesus prophetically knew that they wouldn't. This is very interesting. So he told them how they would respond. And he was spot on. Indeed, their sight would not be restored. At least not that day. How wonderful is the enlightenment that comes on the heels of humility. Point number four, humility fuels our calm patience. It fuels our calm patience. I put those two words together, calm and patience, because it's possible, in a sense, to be calm but not patient. It might look something like this. We smile and we, and we calmly, quietly say, what part of I want it now did you not understand? It's also possible, in a sense, to be patient but not calm. The longer we wait, the madder we get. Neither of these is the fruit of true Christ-like humility. Humility is the wellspring of calm patience. Number five, humility draws us near to God. When we get to Luke chapter 18 in our series through this book in a couple years, we're going to look at the text there that says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Of course, many of you know a Pharisee was a religious leader at this time. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. End of prayer. It says, but the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Here was Jesus' lesson in this. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. That tax collector was willing to admit his fault. That's why his sight was restored. His humility enabled him to see God for who God really is. Enabled him to see himself for who he really was. That man was justified. 
when you and I stand in the presence of God, there is one word we definitely want to hear, and it's God to utter the word justified, forgiven, guiltless, redeemed, and so on. That tax collector was justified. He was forgiven of sin. He was restored in relationship with God. He would walk in the presence of God for eternity. Humility draws us near to God. James 4, 8 through 10, verses many of you know, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Many of us have quoted that verse, focused on that verse, but do we know what the, the very next words say? Cleanse your hands, you sinners. In order for a person to draw near to God and experience the nearness of God to themselves, they must admit they are sinners. They must recognize that it is their hands that need to be washed. The text goes on, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. My church family, that is what godly sorrow looks like. Godly repentance. The passage continues. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Humility is beautiful, is it not? It's powerful. It is the desired life. It precedes exaltation by God. That's how important humility is. The Lord says this in Isaiah 66, verse 2. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. If our church family is going to be defined by something, let that be part of our definition. Humility catches the attention of God, we learn from this verse. It draws us near to him. Many of you know James 4, 6, God is opposed to the proud. Can you imagine the God of the universe opposing someone? How can they possibly stand? But gives grace to the humble. Humility is the key to power, spiritual power. And my prayer is that we will all walk away from here today and into this coming week more and more putting off the blind and damaging spirit of pride and putting on more and more the enlightening and sanctifying spirit of humility. Let's close with verse 30 in our text here in Luke, uh, Luke 4. What happened when this violent mob attempted to throw the Messiah off a cliff? We read it earlier. It says, but passing through their midst, he went his way. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> That's our Savior right there. Something miraculous happened. The enemy could not touch him that day. Think back to last week. Satan couldn't break Jesus fast, and this proud, angry mob couldn't end his life. Jesus was full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, and nothing could stop the will of God from happening in his life. This is the confidence 
of every child of God who walks humbly as Jesus walked. Let's pray. Lord, you have been so good to us through your word. You show us the way, the truth, and the life. It is you. It is the humility of Christ. Thank you for the example he set. Oh, Lord, help us to put on this same mind that Christ had, mind of humility, the mind that sheds all pride. Lord, every single one of us has been wounded by pride, and we have wounded others. We know that this is not not the calling of the children of God, but you not only warn us and instruct us and admonish and reprove us, Lord, you empower us to do what is right. Help us to walk away from this place committed to being filled with the Spirit each day, spending time in the Word and in prayer so that you might fill us to the brim, so that you might then lead us and we follow, so that you might then call us to serving and obeying, and we have the power to do it. Lord, we would be very amiss to think that we can walk from this place and do this in our own strength. We need you and we have you. Thank you, Lord. I pray that if there is one here today or two or three or ten who would say, I don't know that I'm the child, a child of God. I don't know that I have that power. What does it mean to live the life that I see in the scriptures? Lord, I pray that you would give them the courage the motivation to go and open your word and seek out the words of eternal life. Words like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. These are life-changing words, Lord. These are eternity-changing words. Thank you for proclaiming the gospel to us. Thank you for freeing us and releasing us from the captivity of sin. Thank you for opening our eyes to spiritual truths that are only discerned and revealed by God and the Spirit of God. You've been so good to us, Lord. Help us to go, to live as you have called us to live, and share the glory of the gospel that you have entrusted to us. And all God's people said, amen.